So now we'll turn to the Word of God and be taught uh, out of the Scriptures and hear the Lord speak to us. We're going to be in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 this morning, and it will be on the screen and it's in your bulletins, but uh, some may like to just have a paper copy of God's Word and open it right up and look at it there, and it's on page 408 in the Pew Bible, if your desire is to read from there. I'm going to invite my good friend and a fellow, uh, not a fellow law school student, I'm not a law school student, but a law school student, Israel, a brother in Christ, to come forwards and read this passage out of First Chronicles 16 for us this morning. Thank you, Brother Israel. Good morning. Uh, perhaps some of us are wondering why I'm dressed this way. Uh, <laughs> this is a traditional Nigerian outfit, and um, you know it's a new year, so just shining and radiating in God's grace and glory. Praise God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgment he uttered. O offsprings of Israel, his servants, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Is the Lord our God, his judgment are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word I commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant I made with Abraham, his son promised to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statue, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, for he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the word is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them see among the nations the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the feed exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, 
for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The grass with us and the flower feeder, but the word of God stands forever. What a joy and blessing to have um, so many different tribes and tongues uh, represented here amongst us today. God bless you for that, brother. I'm truly grateful. And what a passage. I mean, do we lift our voices in song like that to God? I mean, this moment is truly incredible. And I'm going to talk about kind of what's happening in this passage as we go along. But some of you are probably in the middle of packing up Christmas decorations at your home. Or maybe not. If you're like my family, you leave them up a while. There was this funny moment um, several years ago now when I was posting a picture of our family doing like, we were posting a picture on Facebook and our family was doing like a little uh, camp out night in our living room. And um, I didn't think anything of it, but in the corner of the image was this tree with lights and decorations on it, and uh, this picture was going up right around Easter. And uh, I got some comments about, uh, is that your Christmas tree still up at Easter? So if you're like us, uh, you hesitate to take things down, or maybe you just procrastinate. But many of you, no doubt, like us, may have a nativity scene or a creche in your home, and I've brought some certain pieces from ours here this this morning. Um, I know the church sets one up in the back, and we have one out front, though the storm kind of destroyed the little shelter that we, our big nativity scene here at the church, the storm destroyed it this year, unfortunately. But maybe many of you have your own nativity scene at home, and this is a part of your traditions and celebrations uh, each year. If you have a nativity scene, no doubt you probably have Uh, three wise men that come with the set. Um, Again, here's our three wise men and the camel. As the story in Matthew uh, chapter 2 tells us, they have come from the east bringing gifts to the newborn king of the Jews. And they go right up to uh, the ruler there in Jerusalem and they say, we've come to worship this newborn king. When we look at the average nativity scene, you would think from uh, from looking at that moment and the way it's displayed that they came that very night to present their gifts before Jesus, and they just so happened to arrive right on the night that uh, the Christ was born. This is the way so many of our stories and our movies portray uh, those events. But most likely, however, they came much later. Uh, some even sub- suggest up to two years after his birth. But those are just details, and it's interesting to think about the gifts they bring and what they symbolize, perhaps, and how many of them were there and where they come from, and all those details are interesting to think about. But those are just details. The big point we are to take away from this moment, from these Magi coming from another land to worship the king of Israel, the king of the Jews, Jesus, is that he is not just king of Israel. He is 
the King, the Savior, the Lord of all nations. That's the big point. In Matthew 2, where we read the story of these magi, we see them coming again across the continent to worship Jesus. And that should strike us if we know the bigger story. This is very significant. Men from another land coming to worship a Jewish king. Now ponder that for a moment. Jesus, in his human nature, has not at this point, whether he was you know, a few weeks old, a few months old, two years old, however old he was when they arrived, at that point he has not uttered a word yet, probably not an intelligible word, goo goo ga ga, something like that, right? He's speaking, yet before he has even opened his mouth to teach anything to anyone, here people are coming from across the world responding to him in worship. He's not done a thing yet. He's just arrived. He's just shown up. And the world is coming to Christ. This is so important for us to remember and to ponder. Why might it be so important? Maybe you're wondering, why should we take time to think about this fact? I mean, the Western church takes a Sunday, and I'm sure the Eastern church does this in their own way as well, takes a Sunday to think about these three kings, these magi, these men that have come from afar. And why? Why would we do that? Why would this be a part of the ebb and flow of our yearly celebrations and worship? Well, there's many reasons, but one that comes to mind, at least for me this morning, with my own struggles and Perhaps many of these are yours as well. But we are so prone to narcissism, are we not? To self-absorption, to forgetting that there are others in our world. Israel forgot this. Israel, the chosen people of God, forgot that God did not choose them and raise them up and do what he was doing amongst them so that they could hide their light under a blanket. They were to be a city on a hill. They were to be a light to all the nations, to draw the nations up into worshiping their God. But repeatedly we read in the stories we have in our Bibles that they forgot this calling over and over again. I mean, you could almost just pick a spot in the Old Testament and flip it open. And you're going to bump into, either be in the middle of or bump into very shortly, a story of where Israel forgot this calling. Over and over again, they became insular, narcissistic, focused on self and their own concerns and what they wanted, and what they felt like they should be doing. There was no room for the other guy, for the outsider. In other words, God did not come only for this one group. He did not come so that they would become a bubble Isolated from the rest of the world. And if we're honest, we're tempted to this too, aren't we? It's so easy to not want to deal with new things, new people, different ideas, thoughts. We like the way things are. God wanted 
them, his chosen people, Israel, to be set apart, to be holy, to be dedicated to God, but with the purpose of being a light unto the nations. Their holiness was to be a holiness for others. Lived out before others to bring honor and praise to God and to draw them to God. And we see this reflected in our passage before us today out of First Chronicles. And what we're going to see is this, or what I hope we'll see is this, if I do a, a decent job of presenting these thoughts. Because the nations have always been in God's plan, we must keep them in our plans as well. It's a simple idea. God's always had a desire for the truth to be spread across all the nations, a desire for all the peoples of the world that he made to come to him and worship him. We must keep those things in our minds and in our plans as well. Tim Keller recently said on social media, God never calls us in to love and change us without then sending us out to reach and serve others. If we're called in, changed by God, touched by God, that we might go and serve others and be a vehicle of change in our world. But let's now turn to our passage and see this there for ourselves. But first, let me give you some background about what's going on here, because we kind of just cut in right in the middle of this story and what's going on. And I know how much you guys love to to read multiple chapters on a Sunday, as I've put you through that in recent months of reading multiple chapters. I didn't want to do that this morning because this is quite a long story of what's happening here. So I'm going to do my best to sort of in a couple of paragraphs here uh, tell you what's going on. When you read this passage by itself, it uh, simply sounds like a psalm of praise. And it certainly is. It, it was uttered by one of the greatest psalm writers in history, King David. But probably not in the way we think. You see, this account that we have in First Chronicles is an account that most likely was put together well after these events took place. The book itself, First uh, Chronicles, is focused largely on David and retells much of his life. And, and how these stories were put together in the way they were would be a you know, conversation for another time. But that's what we have here is a compilation of stories about the life of David. And this one here is very significant. This psalm is actually a collection of excerpts or little pieces from the book of Psalms. If you were to open your Bible right to the middle, you find this big book called Psalms. And these are songs written by God's people in worship and praise uh, to God. Some of them are laments. Some of them are expressing grief and burden before God. But they're prayers and songs uh, before God. And what we're reading here in First Chronicles is snippets out of multiple different psalms. Psalms 96, 105, and 106 are all quoted here in this beautiful piece that's been woven together for us in First Chronicles. But what's the occasion? What's going on in this story? Why are these words placed here? Well, here in this moment, the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back into Jerusalem. And I'll talk more about the ark as we go on. There's a lot of concepts here that may be uh, foreign or new. 
Um, the Ark of the Covenant will be, I'll share more about that in a bit, but it's being brought back into Jerusalem. This is a very special um, item that had a lot to do with the worship of Israel. And it was taken, it was stolen by the Philistines who were enemies of God's people in that region. Um, it was stolen by the Philistines some years prior. And the Ark represented uh, to Israel the presence and the power of God. And the Israelites... At the time it was stolen, when the Philistines came and and took it from them, had come to think of it kind of like a magic charm or a rabbit's foot that would protect them. So we don't have to worry about obeying God. We'll just go out and we'll have the ark with us and and all will go well. Well, it didn't go well. Um, That's not um, what the ark was intended for. And um, they wanted uh, something that God did not want. And so... Uh, the Philistines came in and, and stole it, and God had taken and allowed it to be taken as a form of, of judgment, as a lesson to the people of God. Later on, the ark was returned uh, to Israel, and it dwelled in the house of a man named Abinadab. And there it remained for a number of decades. There's some debate about how long it was there, and you've got to piece a bunch of dates together, so I'm not going to try and do that here. But it was there for a number of decades until da- David finally felt moved to go and retrieve it. And that's what's happening here. They've retrieved it. They've gotten the ark back. It was a moment of great jubilee and celebration. And it had been neglected, um, just kind of sitting in this person's home for a long time. And they wanted to bring it back and put it in its proper place where it belonged. And so David here, along with a great swath of musicians and singers praising the Lord uh, as the ark comes into Jerusalem, and they're going to place it. In, in a tent until later on during the reign of Solomon, uh, one of David's sons, it would be uh, placed in the temple when it was all built. And so there was this vision, this idea that was finally coming to fruition, and it was a moment of great jubilee and, and joy. So that's what's going on here as we come to this song of praise. And I know that's a fair bit of history and background there. I hope that helps a little bit. But back to our main point of why we're here. Could have picked a whole slew of passages, but this one was really special in a number of ways. But here's our big point. Because the nations have always been in God's plan, we must keep them in our plans as well. First, I want you to see how the nations here are a part of God's plan. I want you to see that um, from this passage. And I've got three P's, three P words for you this morning that are going to show us Um, how the nations are a part of God's plan. And the first one is this, excuse me, proclaim, proclaim. The Israelites were to proclaim the deeds of God to the nations. And we see that here in this passage. Notice in verse eight, right off the bat, this song of thanksgiving. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. The very start of this hymn, David realizes that this thing that was happening with the ark, again, representing the presence of God, but this thing that was happening was not just an Israel thing. Okay, The symbol of the presence of God, the ark, prompted David to say, we need to tell others to proclaim what the Lord has done to other people. Isn't that interesting? This was a, a, a moment again, which on the surface has everything to do with Israel and the Jews. And here David's like, we got to tell this to the nations. We need to let them know what God is doing. So it's, it's in view right here. 
And not just people, but peoples. Do you notice the plural word peoples? Well, we don't generally talk that way because people's already plural. So I don't know what that would be like. Trying to think of another, I was wrestling with like another example of like a double plural, right? But that's kind of like what peoples is. The writer here is saying something that I think is worth noting. These are different groups of people, okay? So it's a, a plural of a plural. The word can also be translated nations. And so what we're talking about here is different people groups, different ethnicities, right? Different families. And the people of God are being called to proclaim what God has done before these different people groups. So right off the bat, we see here there is a call to proclaim the Lord's deeds among other people groups, non-Israelite groups in the world. And that's wonderful for us, right? Because here we are. I'm not a Jew. Maybe some of you are out there, maybe partly in some way, but we're Gentiles here, right? So this is really exciting for us that somehow we're being invited up into this thing that God is doing. Secondly, we see that this occasion of bringing the ark into Jerusalem is not only a cause for Israel to praise their God, but one for all the nations to sing for joy to the Lord. Okay, so it's not just, hey, watch us praise. It's, hey, you too, sing for joy. You worship God too. So that's our next P word, praise. All the nations are called to praise the Lord. We're not to be spectators, observers. We are to Praise the Lord with Israel. Look at verses 23 to 25. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all other gods. The song of praise continues in verses 28 and 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. There we are again, this peoples, this idea of multiple groups of people praising God. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This praise, this worship was not to be contained to Israel's streets alone. It was not to be sung merely at the tables of the Jewish people. These songs were for all the families of the peoples. All nations, tribes, and tongues were to ascribe the Lord, the glory due his name. Thirdly, here's our other P word. The P word is promise. Here in this passage, we are reminded of God's promise to all the nations. Look at verses 14 through 18. Here is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant, that's another word for promise, that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. God made a promise to Abraham which is mentioned here, the promise, this covenant. We only get a glimpse of one part of it. 
And there's a whole logic to why perhaps this is the part that's mentioned here. But there's multiple parts to this promise that God made to Abraham. Abraham was one of the early patriarchs in the Jewish family. He's the one who the Jews consider the, the father and the great man of faith, the one who this whole thing with, with the Lord revealing himself started with many years ago. So Abraham is a very significant figure. And there's this promise, this covenant that was made with Abraham. And it involves several parts, and one of them is mentioned here. Promise of land, this land of Canaan, in which the the Jews, the Israelites, are now dwelling in, in this story. Okay, there's there's land, but there was more. And does anyone, you don't have to shout it out, but just to prompt, do do you remember any of the other parts of this promise? He was promised offspring, right? His wife was barren and couldn't have a child. The Lord came and said, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. That was a promise. She was getting old. And they were like, how is this going to happen? Right? But God is faithful. God came and said, you're going to have a son. But there was more. Abraham was also told that he would be blessed. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And here comes the relevant part, this last part of this promise for us this morning. That in, in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the families, all the peoples of the world will be blessed through you, Abraham. You can go back to Genesis 12 if you're interested and read more about this moment where God makes these promises to Abraham. And those of us who are reading through our Bible, again, I want to encourage you to pick up a Bible reading plan in the back and join us. We just went through this story this past week in Genesis 12. But God tells Abram at that time, he'd become Abraham, that all of the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. Do you see how the nations are in view from the very beginning, going way back into into the earliest parts of Genesis? God had a plan that involved all the nations. We have a promise. God was going to bless the nations. And then we see here in David's time, the nations are still in view. Here we have a psalm put together. David praising God and calling the nations to do the same. God has not forgotten them. And then we remember at the start of the epiphany season, the wise men coming from the east to worship the Christ child. Beginning, middle, closer to the end of the story. Nations in view throughout. Do you see this? God made all the peoples. God cares for all the people across this broken world. And he has a plan to fix this broken world, and it's for all the nations. And we see this even in our story before us today. In fact, it's the central part of this story, though it's not mentioned directly in this section that we read today. Okay, So there's an aspect of this story that I don't want you to miss, even though it's not mentioned in the section we read. It's the, it's the larger sort of explanation of what is happening here. It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's what's going on with the Ark of the Covenant. How does the Ark of the Covenant play into all of this, this whole story and what's going on here? Maybe you're wondering, what the, what, what the heck is this Ark? What is it? You know, I don't even know. Well, in the Bible, the word Ark refers to something that houses or carries something important. We think of Noah's Ark. Maybe that Ark comes to mind, which carried Noah's family and the animals in the days of the flood. 
carry them safely. Here, the Ark of the Covenant is a box that carries the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Those tablets were of incredible uh, significance in what they represented and meant to the Jewish people. Felicia, if you'll pull up that image for me, if it didn't, hope it, hope you're able to get that. Okay, great. So this is a, um, a sketch of the of the Ark of of the Covenant, and you can leave that up for just a few moments here, Felicia. And in many ways, this is the central player in this whole story. And again, there's a lot to say about it. We don't have time to get into all the details. But the box was made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And once the temple was built, it was placed in the Holy of Holies. So this temple was the place where God's people would gather for sacrifice and hear the scriptures read and for worship. It was the, the central meeting place for the Jewish people later on. At this point in time, at this story, the temple had not been built yet. Um, that was going to be David's son, Solomon, who would actually um, build the temple. But um, at that time, once the temple was built, this Ark of the Covenant would go in the, the most special room in that building, the Holy of Holies. And that doesn't, maybe you're like, well, that doesn't really tell me a lot about what's going on here and what the box is for. Why such a big commotion here over the box that carried some stone tablets? This seems really foreign to us. But let me see if an illustration will help just a little bit. Do any of you have a child or grandchild or maybe it's a niece or a nephew that you've ever sat down with and read a picture book with, a story with? And maybe it's one that you go back to over and over again. Maybe some of you kids out there have a book that's coming to mind right now, a book that's really special to you that has um, pictures and drawings in it of whatever is going on. I know in my family, I could share a very briefly story about one of our daughters has a beautiful book called Why Do We Say Goodnight? And kids don't always sleep well, right? And sometimes they have nightmares and night can be rough for, for some uh, little ones. And one of my daughters has had some struggles in that area. And so we got this book, Why Do We Say Goodnight? And often for many weeks, uh, maybe even years on end, uh, we would read this book before bed and say prayers and all of that. Uh, but this book talks about how the Lord is our shepherd and watches over us at night. And it puts God's promises into pictures that she could understand and make sense of, right, when she was smaller. She just loved this book. It illustrated something that she needed to hear and understand. Many nights wouldn't go to bed without reading this book. Well, ancient Israel did not have children's books and Bibles filled with beautiful illustrations like we do today. God gave them something else. God gave them pictures of the gospel, gave them living illustrations that appear in many places in the Old Testament. And we could talk all about those here. It would take a long time to detail them all. But just quickly, the Passover. Think of the Passover. Think of the Exodus, the sacrificial system, the temple. All of these things were pictures. If you think of them like illustrations in a children's book to help the people understand what God was doing. One of the most beautiful pictures is the Ark of the Covenant. Think of the Ark as, again, a symbol or a picture. It was a real thing, but it was a picture of something greater. It was 
God's way of telling them something else that he wanted them to understand. Uh, Pastor Nick Batsig has a wonderful article that I benefited uh, from greatly as I thought through this section in my sermon today. So I want to give him credit there. He points out all the various elements of the ark and how those were a picture of the person and the saving work of Jesus Christ. This ark is a is a a small picture of Christ and his work, the things that he was going to do for his people in living and dying and rising again. The ark pointed to Jesus. And I want us to see this. Okay, I want us to see this very important aspect of our story, which has everything to do with with the nations. And we'll conclude in, at that point. First, as we've already seen, the ark contained the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? The T- Ten Commandments were the heart of the law, the heart of God's instructions to Israel. These are the ones that you and I have all broken. Okay, if we're totally honest, we've all failed in every way. Yet Christ, Jesus, the babe born 2,000 years ago, came and didn't just teach the commands of God. He certainly did that. He kept them perfectly in every moment for you and me. So we see that aspect here in the ark. Also, the book of Hebrews tells us that the ark also contained a couple of other important items in this golden overlaid box here. It contained a golden urn that held the manna. The manna was this food that God fed the people of Israel with in the wilderness uh, back when they were leaving Egypt, when they were slaves and coming out of Egypt. They were fed on this stuff called manna, which literally translated, I think, means like, what is it? Something like that. It was just a random word given to this mysterious food that God was feeding them with in the wilderness. But Batsig writes this, the manna in the golden bowl foreshadowed the life-sustaining food that God gives his people in Christ. When Israel was in the wilderness, the Lord sustained them with this mysterious bread, this manna, this what is it? When Jesus fed the 5,000, he said these words, listen, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is he who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. The flesh and blood of Christ is the life sustaining food for the believer. And we have that here in the ark. Next. Hebrews says the ark also contained Aaron's staff that budded as well. Many of you may Know this story. If you were to go back in the book of Numbers, you would find there was a certain je- there were certain jealous men who called Aaron's priesthood into question. How, why are you the priest? Has God really appointed you? They did this to Moses as well. Aaron was actually a part of that, I believe. But God commanded them to place their staff next to Aaron's. The Lord then caused Aaron's rod, his staff, to bud as a sign that he had chosen Aaron as his priest. The priests were the ones who went between God and the people. They were the ones who, who, who facilitated, made relationship with God possible. Okay? They were the ones chosen by God Himself for this task. Well, Jesus Christ is our one chosen, perfect mediator, our high priest. There will be no other priests. Only Christ now facilitates our relationship with the Father. He was the one appointed by God to once and for all finally fulfill this role. And that here is depicted in the ark. Finally, on top of the ark, you see that there, that lid with the cherubim. Those are angelic figures 
with wings and they're covering, covering their eyes and reaching out. That lid there is called the mercy seat. And here is where, again, these two golden cherubim sit covering their eyes with their wings out facing the middle of the mercy seat. These were a reminder of the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. So holy. Here the Old Testament tells us God was supposed to be seated right there in between the cherubim. And from that place, he was to dispense mercy to man when the blood of the atonement was sprinkled there. This was the place where the high priest came in once a year into that most holy place. It could only go once a year. You didn't come in and out of this room willy-nilly. There was this whole procedure and process to enter into God's presence at that time and in that way. He would come in once a year and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat between the cherubim there. And when the Lord saw the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, he forgave the sins of the people and withheld his judgment. And maybe you're wondering, if you're like me, how could he do this? How could God just forgive sins because some animal's blood was sprinkled on a a lid, on a golden box? Well, because this was a reminder of what God fully intended to do. He would one day send his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And Jesus would spill his infinitely valuable, precious blood for the sins of all who would come to trust in him. In all of these ways and more. And again, there's much more to say about this. And time is of the essence here. The ark was a symbol and picture of the person and the work of Jesus. This is an illustration for the people in that time and place to understand that one was coming. This babe was coming who was going to make atonement, make a way for us to know God. And the ark is in the center of this moment here in First Chronicles 16. Even though the people at that time did not know it, it was through Christ all of these P words would come to the nations. The promise of God to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed in him. That promise was fulfilled in Christ. And because Christ was the seed or offspring of Abraham, Through faith in Christ, we become a part of the family of Abraham. Each of us in here, no matter where we're from, if we are looking to Christ for our salvation, if we have turned to him in faith, we are in the family of Abraham, the Bible says. So all believers from all nations are blessed in the man Abraham. You see in that how that connection there, that promise makes its way to all the nations? And that faith throughout the nations happens through what? How do, how do people come to faith in the other nations? How do friends like Israel and Victor and many of you others out here, they're perhaps not from, the, from our nation. How did we come to know this? We're not Jews. Well, it was through the proclamations. There's someone proclaiming the gospel message and sharing it with us, right? As we proclaim the gospel, others are converted and come to Jesus, which results in what? Praise, promise, proclamation, praise. There's the three P's. We see all of these in our passage today. Okay, finally, what does this mean for you and me? Got a lot of information there, a lot to digest, probably a lot of time we could take to to do that. But what does it mean for you and me? And I'm just going to end where I began. 
This thing that God is doing has always been about the nations. Like Israel, you and I were called because God wants to use us to reach the nations, the peoples, with this message. One of my pastor heroes has said many times, missions exist because worship doesn't. The only way the nations will worship and praise Christ is if you and I go to them. Now, for most of us, that means we go to our neighbors, right? The nations here can be, well, the nations are here, right? God has brought the nations to us. But for most of us, this means we talk to our families, our co-workers, people across the street. It may mean for some of us that we go a bit further. Maybe we leave our home state or maybe we leave our home country. Maybe we leave our own people. But the promise must be proclaimed if people are to praise. If you have truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good, the natural result will be what we see here in this beautiful hymn. You will be like David and sing. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his works. Glory in his holy name. God's heart is for all peoples. For all nations. Is your heart for all peoples. And for all nations to know our God. Amen.